The singing of the doxology by the PCC student body begins Pensacola Christian College Chapel. At each chapel service, students have an opportunity to receive spiritual exhortation and enrichment during a time of music and meditation on God's Word. This podcast shares selected recent chapel messages from guest speakers, faculty, and staff. Welcome to the PCC Chapel Podcast. Good morning. It's good to be back with you today. And uh, it was, it's been enjoyable to be on campus. We have a couple students from our own church that are here. And it's good to see Jessica and Rebecca and get them out to a, a meal off campus. That's always enjoyable. And then, um, you know, it's good to see some of our, I don't know what we call them here, legacy students. Uh, I went to school with your mom and dad, and now you're here as a student. I've enjoyed hearing a lot of the stories. It's interesting that your parents have not changed. And I'm glad to hear that. They're still getting in trouble. And uh, that is, that's always fun to, to reminisce with the students here on campus about your parents and their glory days here at Pensacola Christian College. Um, We're going to continue our sermon, I guess, topical series on conversations on evangelism today. And I'd like to give you a head start. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 16, and as you're turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, um, I'd like to let you know kind of how evangelism became a priority for me as a pastor. Uh, Back in 2010, I was serving as an assistant pastor in a church in Houston, Texas, and uh, the Lord was doing uh, wonderful things inside of our church, inside of our youth group. We were growing, but I went to this conference and I saw a video of great preachers of years gone by, and the video talked about those who had come to Christ underneath their ministry and what they happen to be doing now and how the gospel was being disseminated across the world outside of these uh, ministries that these pastors were a part of. And one of the common threads was that each one of these men were great soul winners. And as we finished the conference on that Monday night... um, I asked the Lord, I said, hey, I want to be used like that. I want, Lord, I want you to do something like that in the ministry that that we're a part of. And it was as if the Lord just kind of gently, as he often does, speaks to your heart. And he says, "Um, I would love to. But you're not a soul winner. And I didn't know what to say other than the fact... ...that I want to be. And so I spent the rest of that conference... ...going to every soul-winning breakout session... ...that I could find. And that night, I remember Monday night... ...after the conference, um, Lori and I prayed... ...and said, Lord, with your help... ...we will be faithful to give the gospel. We'll be faithful disciple people... ...to learn to give the gospel. And so... Some might say, well, what kind of motivated you to do that? And the passage that sticks out to me most happens to be in Luke chapter 16. So today we're going to talk about some motivations for witnessing. Um, We discovered yesterday in Luke chapter 15, we have the three stories of things that are lost. You have the lost sheep, you have the lost coin, you have the lost son. And thankfully, those were sought out. And they were found, and the Bible says that everyone rejoiced. In every one of those stories, there's rejoicing over that thing which is found. But in Luke chapter 16, 
we have the answer to what happens when things stay lost. So Luke chapter 16, verse number 19, this is what the Bible says. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died. And he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torment, seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame." But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus received evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham saith unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, if, what if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Let's talk about mo- the motivation for witnessing. If we were just to go to the dictionary and look up the word motivation, we would find it means to provide A reason to act a certain way. That's what motivation is. Whether it's motivation to get into the gym, motivation to eventually do your English homework, whatever it happens to be, there's an incentive, a reason to act a certain way. And today, we'll not only speak of evangelism, we're going to look at these three factors that motivate us to give out the, the gospel. But to be good students of the word of God... Before we move further, I want to let you know, I don't think, oftentimes we hear this passage of scripture referred to as the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, but I I don't think this is a a parable, and the reason, I'm going to give you just some bullet points as to why, and you can maybe research it further, but a parable is a short, simple, earthly story intended to illustrate a biblical, a greater biblical truth, and so we have the parable of the sower and the seed. It's something that we know. It's in our physical realm. A sower went forth to sow and the seed is the word of God and it falls on different types of ground. And the farmers and, and all those agriculture people in, in that society, they, they get it. We have a, uh, the parable of a, um, um, I said sower and seed, but the pearl, right? You're gonna, things that are buried out in the field as well. Um, you know, hey, he sells everything. A parable, so let me give you six reasons why I don't think this is a parable, and then we'll move directly to our, our preaching this morning. This would be the only parable that describes things that are outside the realm of human experience. No other parable does that in the New Testament. This would be also be the only parable in the Bible that uses a proper name, Lazarus, Abraham. It would be the only parable in the Bible that makes mention repeatedly of historical persons like Abraham, who 
really lived, Lazarus who really lived. It would be the only parable in the Bible that describes the place where the dead go. Whether that is into heaven or whether that is into to hell, we have a description of things that are otherworldly. It would be the only parable in the Bible also that, to make mention of angels. And if I'm wrong, let's say that you and I disagree, and that's okay, we can disagree. If, if, if we disagree, then hell is much worse than what we'll describe today because a parable describe, is an earthly reality, describes a greater spiritual truth. So what is mentioned here today, if it is a parable, then hell is so much worse than what can be put into words this morning. I'll start with our first motivation this morning, and that is that hell is a real place. Hell is a real place. This isn't a subject that uh, pastors like to preach on. It's not a subject that we as Christians even like to dwell on. Nevertheless, it is a real scriptural truth that must be addressed. Originally, hell was intended for the devil and his angels. We have that in Matthew 25 and verse number 41 when it says... Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is eternal punishment in literal fire. In Matthew 18, verses 8 to 9, the Bible says, Wherefore, if thy hand or foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed than having two hands or two feet. ...to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It's better to to enter into life with one eye... ...rather than having two eyes and be cast into hell fire. So hell is a real place. It's got real fire. That fire lasts for all of eternity. Hell is torment. Three verses out of Mark chapter 9. We'll read verses 44, 46, and 48... And the Bible just simply repeats this phrase over and over. Where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Verse 46, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Verse 48, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. It is amazing when you read biblical scholars on the subject of hell. It's interesting that everyone thinks that Heaven is a real place that lasts for all of eternity. But there are those uh, liberal theologians who somehow believe that hell is not eternal. It's not a real place. It is somehow spiritualized in some way. But that is not what the Bible says. Hell is eternal wailing and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 13 verses 49 to 50. So shall it be at the end of the world... ...when the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. That's speaking of the saved and unsaved, not those who do good and do bad. There's only two classifications, those who are born again and those who are not. And shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's difficult for me to describe that because um, we oftentimes have never experienced that type of pain... ...where you gnash down on your teeth till they break... When my son, the youngest, Clayton, was not quite yet two years old, um, we went, we were living in San Antonio, Texas at the time, and we went over to a 
uh, home of a surgeon. He went to the same church that we went to, and we were just going to have a cookout on the back porch, and we were going to be doing some French fries and things, and they thought it'd be, you know, good to do that in the oven, and, and that's the way it should be done. I mean, if, if you're going to do it at home, or now we have the air fryers. I, I, I stand corrected. Uh, you should do those in air fryers, but we didn't have those back then, and, um, and so what happened was, the lady of the house who was preparing it took the oven door and set it down, heated to 425 degrees. She turned around to grab the tray of fries, and before she could turn back around, Clayton ran into the room and saw something that he could climb on. And he put his forearms on the stove door. And immediately... Standing about an inch off of his skin were blisters from the tip of his pinky all the way to his forearm, and he screamed. So loud. And the only reason I tear up when I tell this is because I can't get that sound out of my mind. He's fine. He's 18 years old. He doesn't feel that pain anymore. But I was there to experience it. And I'm telling you, the sounds that he made when he screamed are unlike anything I've ever heard. In fact, he cried himself so hard that he broke a blood vessel in his face that had to be eventually by a plastic surgeon removed. A granuloma formed on his face where blood vessels actually broke because he screamed so loud until he finally passed out. We were there at the surgeon's house, and he's like, I'm going to save you a bunch of money here. There is nothing they can do for you. We're going to bandage him. We're going to put cool compresses on him, and in a few days, those blisters will begin to harden, and they will eventually slough off. And, and, um, and so he treated us right there at the house, and, and, um, and we carried him home, and he would wake up every so often, and he would scream until he fell asleep. And if that is a portion of what is experienced when it says that they gnashed their teeth together in excruciating pain, who would want anyone to go to that place for all of eternity? And yet the Bible tells us that all those who do not trust Christ as their Savior, that is their eternal place. They shall go away into everlasting punishment. The first thing I want you to see this morning, that hell is real. The second thing I want you to see is that hell has no escape. Here is the rich man in hell. He lifts up his eyes, being in torment, separated from God, yet he is still able to think, he is still able to reason, and he is still able to recognize Lazarus. In Abraham's bosom... Afar off. In Luke chapter 16, verse 26, the Bible says that there is no escape. Besides this, between us and you, there's a great goal fixed so that they would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from fence. So there's this great goal fixed. Now we understand that that was paradise, and I don't want to go through a theological treatise today on how Christ 
descended into the lower parts of the earth after his crucifixion, grabbed the keys of death and hell, took all the saints in paradise to heaven proper. You know, you guys can study that out on your own. This is going to take a long time to get through a chapel message if we, if we dive into that process. But at this time, the Old Testament saints, they were in paradise. There is no escape for those who are in hell. They were able to look across the great divide. And the Bible says that, and we'll get to it here in just a moment, the Bible says that he asked for two things. He does not ask to be released because he knows there is no escape. He asked for a Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool his tongue as if that would help. If you can imagine that that would be soothing. Anyone who's ever played a sport, I was in the field house. That's still called the field house. Do we still call it that? Okay. Um, in the old gym and where we beat TTU in 1992. All right, and so um, so we had um, we watched the volleyball game last night, and in between all these matches, everybody was getting a, a big drink of water. Can you imagine after competing in an event and, and say, "Hey, listen, I need something to quench my thirst. Could someone please just dip your finger in the Gatorade bottle and just?" To imagine the torment you must be in to think that that would soothe you. The Bible also says that we can't pray someone out of hell. I know that there are religions who say, hey, listen, if we just go light a candle, if we say some prayers, if we give some money, that we can transfer them from one place to another. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 27, it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. We have to decide in this life where our eternal destination will be, which is why the Bible says we must sweep the house. We must seek for that lost sheep or that lost son because this is the place where those things that remain lost spend all of eternity. And we want to be like our Savior. God wants sinners to repent and trust in him. I know that you know these verses, but in 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but his long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He loves us so much that he sent his only begotten son. Would you mind if we just said that together? John 3, 16. Can we, can we, we do this with our Wana kids every Wednesday night? Would you say that with me? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God wants sinners to repent, but he needs someone to tell the sinners... The gospel. So point number three. This is where we'll spend the remainder of our time. The cry from hell's gate. The cry from hell's gate. You would think that the rich man would be crying out to be released. But knowing that escape is not an option, he asks for what he considers to be the next best thing. He says this. And I'm paraphrasing, please tell my family. Luke 16, verses 27 to 28. Luke 16, verses 27 and 28. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, 
that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. I have five brothers. Please let Lazarus go tell them not to come here. I know that they think that life is great right now. I know that they're trying to earn the world's riches and the world's approval and the likes and all of those things. But this place is awful. It is never-ending torment that is going to last forever. It is a real place and I don't want my brothers coming here. Do whatever it takes. Somebody tell my family. The rich man is told they have the Bible. Let them believe the Bible. That's what he means by Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament. And in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, I think we have some of the most motivating words in the New Testament. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But there is a verse right after that. How shall they call upon them in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So the question is coming back, who will tell my brothers? When we went to Colville, Washington, just this small town in northeast Washington, if you look on the map, it doesn't look like much. We are just about 50 miles south of Canada and just about 50 miles west of Idaho. So we're in the inland northwest. We live in a timber community. It's it's small. We have less than 5,000 people in our town. And um, how are we going to get the gospel? And here's what the Lord kept bringing back to my mind, just as a a pastor, maybe even less than that, maybe just as as a person. If... The rich man asked God to send someone to Colville to tell his brothers about salvation, about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. If it was my responsibility, would they ever hear the good news? Could the rich man count on me and our church to reach his brothers. How will we find his brothers? I shared that with our deacons and said, we're going to have to do some things that we are uncomfortable with. When we went in 2012, there were no tracks in our church. We had a track rack and it had magazines in it, but no invitations and so we just simply said hey listen we're going to get some invitations to our church they're going to have the gospel on the back of them and a quick story about our church and it's just going to have a a slogan on the front that invites people to come to be a part of First Baptist Church but we need to find a way to get to every door in our community now with less than 5,000 people we only have 1,650 homes actually inside the city limits of our town but there was Mathematically, there was an easy solution to this. If we could get 200 people to take eight cards and choose eight homes 
we could reach every house in our town in about 30 minutes. Mathematically, now get 200 people to show up for visitation, right? That's the, that's the real you know, difficulty, more than it is mathematically. But we began to tell our church, listen, there's no reason why we can't find his brothers. Now, we can't do maybe what some of you do. When I lived in Houston, Texas, and we had 250,000 people within five miles of our church, we had to choose a zip code. <laughs> you know, we had, to, we had to limit where we went. For me, it's an entire town. And so we just commit every year. I went to the city planning commission and said, listen, I know this is an unusual request. I promise I'm not a terrorist. Could I get a layout of the town and every tie-in for all of the natural gas and electric? And they did. They gave it to me with the addresses printed out. And I would know where every home. I have 40 sheets. We copy them every year. We put eight homes on every sheet. And we, at Easter and vacation Bible school and Christmas time when we're having different things, we go out and we make sure that every door in our town gets an invitation to come hear about Jesus and has the gospel on the back of that. I have a pastor friend that I thought he had a funny comment. He says, I want to visit so many doors that they, when I knock, they think it's the Mormons. Well, we decided not to bug everybody in our town every weekend, but we make sure that once a year we reach every home in our town, because honestly, I want to stand. Before my Lord. And say, I did everything I possibly could to find his brothers. Because if that was my family member, I would want someone seeking for them. You know, sometimes we, out of embarrassment, say, I don't know if I can do that, Pastor. I know you gave us six ways yesterday, five ways. I can't remember how many. You probably don't either. Um, to use your personality, but I, can know this, I do know this. We're not embarrassed if we think there's an emergency. Several years ago, um, there was a fire at Lori's grandparents' house in Zanesville, Ohio. Um, it was 4.30 in the morning. There was a mailman who was out. He was on his way into the station there in Zanesville. As he was driving by the house, he saw smoke coming out of the, out of the attic. And so um, he stopped his mail truck. He went in and he began to knock on the door and nobody answered so he went around the first story and he knocked on the windows and he began yelling and screaming and trying to get a hold of someone and finally grandma and grandpa woke up and they got out of the house and they were spared but the house was a complete loss and when they interviewed the mailman not one time did he say you know I really didn't want to be a bother it was 4 30 in the morning I know that they were sleeping soundly I I was so embarrassed you know, to, to knock on their door. I was so embarrassed to have a conversation and say, you know, oh, your house is on fire. Uh, I wasn't sure if I should say anything or not, but I decided I'd give it a shot. When we believe that hell is a real place filled with real fire that lasts for all of eternity and there is no escape, it's not embarrassing. 
It's a matter of life and death. We say to those that we... And, and tomorrow night, in, in Wednesday night church, I'll give you some ways to start these gospel conversations that I have found worked well for me. I gave you one yesterday, but I, I have some others that I think can help you start a gospel conversation all over Pensacola and the town that you go to uh, when you leave for Christmas break, where you can start to begin to say, hey, listen, if this is one of the brothers, I want to reach them with the gospel. Their house is on I'm going to end with this quote, and we'll be done this morning. Charles Spurgeon said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. Someone today is crying out, Please tell my family. And the question is, can they count on you? You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College, empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.